from PRX. Today on Studio 360... I think more editors should live with their films longer. You have to live with the film. For four decades, Thelma Schoonmaker has been Martin Scorsese's closest collaborator and most patient. We sometimes like to do 12 edits of our movies. Yeah, it it takes a long time to get it right. The Oscar-nominated editor of The Irishman breaks down their painstaking process. Plus, I'm not afraid of cinema. I love cinema. I'm not trying to make cinema disappear. Why Quentin Tarantino, up for an Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, makes no apologies for filling his movies with quotes from other movies. You know, could you imagine an author having read too many books? I love cinema. I have no problem basking in cinema and its history. Oh, you're looking good, baby. It's our 2020 Oscar Hour, coming up on Studio 360. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With The Academy Awards are upon us, so we're spending this hour on Studio 360 looking at some of the nominated films and talking with the people who made them, such as Martin Scorsese's epic gangster movie, The Irishman, which is up for 10 awards. So what do you want me to do? No, not that. Not that. What you got to do is, you know, put a firecracker up Dorfman's ass. Fitz will get the message. He'll get the message. On The Irishman, Scorsese worked once again with Robert De Niro and once again with Joe Pesci. And once again with his closest collaborator, who's up for one of those Oscars for The Irishman, film editor Thelma Schoonmaker. She worked with him on his very first feature when they were kids in 1967 and on every one of Scorsese's films since 1980. She's cut everything from the balletic fight sequences in Raging Bull to those crazed, hilarious, drugged-out party scenes in Wolf of Wall Street. That's one of the great things about working for him uh, is that every film is different. He never wants to repeat himself. I talked with Thomas Schoonmaker in 2017 about their long partnership. He sets himself certain challenges with each film, and I get to go over the hurdle with him, which is very, very exciting. It, it makes every film a new wonderful adventure, and I just love it. Right. So walk me through how you and uh, Mark Scorsese work together. I mean, you say you see a script, you see a shooting script right before he shoots, mm-hmm. and then you, then you wait till you get the film and, and mm-hmm. you do your thing. Is that it? or 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 And is he with you? Or do you sit down for a couple of days and say, okay, this I think goes here and this maybe is shorter? How does that work? Well, I always do the first cut. Um, On your own? Yes, from from his, when he looks at dailies with me, that's very important. And you do that as you're yes, shooting? Yes, hopefully. We, once he looks at dailies, then I, uh, he gives me a ton of notes and I tell him what I feel. He wants me to be a cold eye looking at the dailies sure. and tell him if there's anything wrong. I and don't he says the third take is great and you say, no, 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 that, it's the fifth take. That's right. So uh, I take very careful notes from that and then I make selects in descending order of preference of the delivery of the line, for example. And then I make the first cut. And then as soon as he's through shooting, he comes in and we do everything else together. We sometimes like to do 12 edits of our movie. And how many weeks is that? 
It depends. Sometimes it can be as long as a year. Really? Yeah. Uh, sometimes it can be six months. We cut Cape Fear in six months. But never less than six months? No. Wow, that's a hard job. Yeah, it, it takes a long time to get it right, you know. And uh, So that's like 30 seconds a day or less. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I just did the math. It is. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just very, it's, we work really hard and we screen much more and recut much more than most editors are allowed to do. Fortunately, we are allowed to do that. Right. Um, I think more editors should live with their films longer. You have to live with the film. Absolutely. Uh, really or, or live with it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's that's so important. And then, of course, all the finishing work is takes a long time putting the music in and the sound effects and mixing it and right. all of that. Uh, it and you, so are you still highly involved in that? Process? Oh, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mix the the rough cuts. So you're or, really the director. You're really the filmmaker. We should start saying Thelma Schoonmaker films. Not at all. Marty is very much the director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm his collaborator. Everybody goes, yeah, 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 but you know, it's true. I know. He's a great editor. He taught me everything I ever know about editing. So what did he teach you? Like, for instance, how how do you use editing and holding on a character to build the character? What's an example of that? Well, one thing that would be something you might know, which is that in the scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci is asking, what's so funny about me? What do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, it's funny, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you? I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? One of the interesting cuts that we made there is uh, this is a situation that actually happened to Joe Pesci himself, and he told Marty about it, and then Marty decided to put it in the film. Uh -huh. So actually the Ray Liotta character is who Joe Pesci was, and Joe Pesci is playing the mafia guy uh -huh. who's, who's tormenting him. And Pesci told Marty, I knew at a certain point that I had to figure out a way to break it with humor or something, or I was going to get killed. And so we spent a long time trying to figure out how long to wait for Ray Liotta to say, Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> and we tried it with eight seconds. We tried it with seven seconds. We tried it with... I think to we end ended the tension that somebody's going to get killed right here. Six yeah. seconds of time. Right. And after the last explosive and threatening remark, How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Instead of cutting to Ray Liotta and having him say the line right away, Marty told him, wait. And then... Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. Uh, and everybody starts to laugh. So we tried many different lengths of how long to hold on Ray Liotta. That's huh. the kind of thing that right. editing is about. And one of the things I tell students, too, that whole sequence was shot in a medium wide. There were no close-ups in it at all because Marty wanted to show what was happening to the people around Ray Liotta and around Joe Pesci as it starts out very funny. Everybody's laughing. Then pretty soon things begin to get a little scary and they get scarier and scarier. And you see on the faces of the people around them that they're really beginning to get worried. And that was a great lesson for me in the right use of technique. You don't always have to have close-ups. Um, sometimes a medium shot or a wide shot is just as good. Well, and it's interesting that you said he said, wait, and there's a version of comedy going on in that horrible, 
oh my God, scene. So it is a timing thing of, of a second or two. Well, editing about. is all about timing and rhythm, yeah. you yeah. know, between two actors. And uh, uh, so that we often will um, delay uh, a line delivery or, for example, Marty sometimes will take the sound out as he did in, in Silence. There's a scene where uh, Kichichiro steps on a, a, a Fumi and it swish pans to his mother who's and, horrified. And, and, and just so people know who that is, it's, it's this kind of skeevy, uh, Christian character, right? Right, and uh, and 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 who is forced to step on an image of Jesus? Of Jesus to show that he's right. apostatizing, giving up the faith, yep. supposedly. And the camera swish pans to his mother, uh, screaming in horror that he's done this. And Marty said, "Take the sound out," and it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And there are several other times where we did that in the movie too. Um, and there have been other times where we've done it in Raging Bull, for example, when Sugar Ray Robinson cannot get Jake LaMotta to go down in the last crucial fight. Uh, and he can't figure out what he can do to get him to go down. And Marty did this incredibly beautiful shot, which where Sugar Ray pulls back, the lights dim, and you just see Sugar Ray standing there breathing. You hear just the sound of an animal breathing. And our sound editor, Frank Warner, said to us, take the sound away. And then go back to Sugar Ray, and the lights come back up, and the camera comes back up to speed, and he comes in for the kill. And so all of that is what makes editing and great yes. camera work and great directing. Thelma, yes. <laughs> uh, this was just uh, the greatest. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much. Thelma Schoonmaker's been nominated for an Academy Award for her editing of The Irishman. She's already won three for Raging Bull, The Aviator, and The Departed. To hear Thelma Schoonmaker give a literal blow-by-blow of how she edited one of the great fight scenes in Raging Bull, go to studio360.org. Another Oscar contender this year is Noah Baumbach's drama Marriage Story, which stars Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. How dare you compare my mother to my mother? I may be like my father, but I am not like my mother. You are! And you're like my father. You're also like my mother. You're all the bad things about all of these people, but mostly your mother. It'll be interesting to see during the Oscar TV show exactly how Adam Driver reacts when they play a clip of his Best Actor-nominated performance. Because he hates seeing or hearing himself on screen so much that a few months ago he walked out on Terry Gross in the middle of an interview for Fresh Air when she played a clip of him. Which surprised me because when I talked to him in 2013, he was indulgent as we watched one of his scenes from the TV show Girls. I did ask him why it made him so uncomfortable. Um, Well, I mean, lots of reasons. I just forgot what I looked like to, and was reminded, and my God, that's uh, <laughs> no one should have to go through that. Uh, but but most, mostly because I feel like um, uh, if it was going to continue, if it was going to kind of go on, that, uh, you know, I came from a theater background where you don't get to uh, look at the end result or what, what is actually being across. Right. So you just have to do your homework and then uh, as much as you can and then show up on the day and be open to something being different or not knowing the answer. And I think that in things that I've watched in the past, like uh, one, I would just obsess about them for months and drive myself crazy. After and, you saw your work. Yeah, of things that I wanted to fix and change or or do over again. And I, I you know, obviously you can't. And, and same thing 
with the people around me. I just drive them nuts with like asking him questions. So, so would, and that's just that's annoying. Yeah, but couldn't it wouldn't it be allow you to like oh next time I won't do that? Oh or, totally. Or that, yeah, to yeah, get yeah. better the next time. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. It just kind of seems <laughs> yeah. to uh, be what I think. I think I have a natural tendency to try to make things perfect or better looking or. Uh, uh, change it for the sake of changing it, arbitrary uh, changing or making, right. it, making it look better. And, I, and the things that I'm interested in and watching in film and theater and television are always the imperfect or the ugly part of it. And I, I just know of myself, especially while we're shooting it, like I have no interest to see like what is coming across. Um, I On this show, I ask guests a lot about their, their kind of aha moments as young people, the thing they saw or experienced or read or whatever that made them pursue whatever creative field they're in. I read that the moment you realized you wanted to be an actor wasn't in a theater or watching TV, but during basic training in the Marines? No, it wasn't basic training. We were, it was in the fleet. Uh, artillery was firing white phosphorus over us. I was a, a mortarman. And As a training exercise. Yeah, it was a training. Yeah, and um, got the coordinates wrong and they, they fired on us as opposed to the target. So uh, it was really windy and, and coupled with the fact that all of us were running Away from it? Uh, away from it. Because if it touched you, it would burn you and in... Yeah. Um, and that was kind of my first experience with, uh, oh, like, um, even though I'm young, I could uh, die. And the two things that I wanted to do is I wanted to smoke and uh, be an actor. That n- didn't have any relation to each other. I just, yeah. like, I never really smoked cigarettes. I want to see what... <laughs> really? Yeah. I That's funny. S- <laughs> I want to see what that uh, is like. Yeah, and... I almost got killed. Let me kill myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then you got injured, right? And and, uh-huh. and didn't stay in the Marines? No, yeah, I broke my sternum. And, and had that not happened and had the Marines worked out, uh, would you have ended up where you are now, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. The, I mean, I didn't want to go. Like being a civilian again and all kind of getting my civilian privileges was like a hard thing to swallow, especially when they were kind of overseas doing their job and I wasn't. Like I was here in New York in acting school. Like that was kind of a, a really difficult uh, transition. And I would say I still regret not being able to, to go th- go through the full enlistment. Yeah. W- with my, with that specific group of people. I mean, like there's no, there's which no, is what it's all about at that. Yeah. Yeah. Point, all, right? Yeah. There's no, like, uh, you kind of w- join for whatever reasons and you know, we all kind of had reasons, but as soon as you kind of get in with that group of guys, you kind of forget about the outside where I remember very specific moments of being in a chow hall and watching, uh, um, President Bush at then being like, oh, our military is in a high uh, state of alarm. And I'm like, really? I'm, we're on red alert? You know, I'm, I'm here eating eggs right now and uh, thinking about getting a second helping of potatoes. Like where the, the outside world seems something completely disconnected and, and we wanted to go and, and do our jobs with this, you know, group of guys. And the idea of not being with them through that is like, there's no, there's no way to describe it. And how. where did they deploy to? Uh, they went uh, over. They did a Westpac in, of Iraq and Afghanistan. And now that you're an actor and and you're on in casts and uh, does it is it hard for you not to feel as cast get together and feel oh we're part of this group and like you don't know what you're talking about. I was in the Marines with this unit that I felt th- that was feeling close to people. <laughs> I think I when I first got out I had a really strong sense of entitlement about being in the military and like and not and adjusting to civilian life and getting really aggressive with civilians about like what are you like complaining about getting in line for a latte like you know they're uh, but as since um, 
I, I don't really think that's – I've been fortunate enough to find acting to be able to find the language to express that. So I, I feel like I haven't gotten – like I started to calm down a little bit. And no to, longer to judging civilians? Well, there's also – right. Well, there's also a strong connection between the military, I think, and theater or acting and uh, just that, you know – In that band of brothers kind of way? Yeah, but uh, – yeah, that there's uh, – you know, you're trying to accomplish a mission that's greater than yourself. It's it, it's not really about you. You have to know your role within a, a team. Uh, you know, you have to be intimate with people in a short amount of time and they're, the, the stakes are really high. The pressure is really high. Obviously, life or death circumstances don't really compare to, you know, uh, bad crafty. But uh, um, uh, the, still, the the sentiment of trying to accomplish something that's that is not about one specific person and and putting your trust within other people and the discipline and the self maintenance it all applies. Well, Adam Driver, it has been a pleasure meeting you. Thanks. Oh, likewise, thanks for having me. Adam Driver is nominated for Best Actor for his role in Marriage Story. Coming up next. It's like the Oscars. That's why we came to you. I never won an Oscar. And that's a damn shame. He's the most enduring star in Hollywood, recognized all over the world, immortalized in gold. But who was this guy, Oscar? Well, he was apparently great friends with John Wayne. He supposedly taught Rudolf Valentino to tango. He's a bit like a Forrest Gump. The real man behind the statue. That's next on Studio 360. We are devoting this whole hour of Studio 360 to the Oscars. It's officially the Academy Awards, but people all call it the Oscars because of that statue, which hasn't changed a bit since the late 1920s. The abstracted Art Deco figure plated in gold. But those packs, those thighs, those shoulders, they came from a real guy. And his name was not Oscar. Posey Gruner has the story. They called him El Indio. And in Mexico, he's kind of a big deal. His real name was Emilio Fernandez, and he was one of Mexico's greatest directors. Y ahora ya conoces la historia de esta tierra, que es la historia de toda la tierra de México. He died in 1986, and his home in Mexico City has been turned into a museum. <laughs> Cristobal Arias Gomez is the historian there. El Indio is a sacred figure. It's like he's already made it into history for all the great work he's accomplished. Together with his muse, Dolores Del Rio, and his cinematographer, Gabriel Figueroa, Fernandez made some of the best films from the golden age of Mexican cinema. Emilio Fernandez led a big life. And he told some big stories. Well, he was apparently great friends with John Wayne. He told John Steinbeck the story that became the novella, The Pearl. He supposedly taught Rudolf Valentino to tango. Um, he's a bit like a Forrest Gump. Dolores Tierney teaches film at the University of Sussex. She wrote a book about Fernandez. And she believes some of his stories. As for the story that he posed for the Oscar, she finds it persuasive. This one seems to be quite true because there are a number of things that point to its veracity. For example, Fernandez had a great physique. A legendary physique, according to many of his uh, biographers. Tierney has a photo of Fernandez that was taken when he was young. He's standing in swim trunks, and he kind of looks like the Oscar. You know, very broad chest, very slim waist, you know, very similar to the Oscar statuette. Even his nose seems kind of Oscar-like. Not broad, not, not, not thin, um, a kind of a distinguished nose, I'd say. 
And Fernandez had that same bearing, that way of thrusting his shoulders back. Era un personaje robusto. He had a robust, athletic figure. He went to the military academy. And so he had a unique type of body, a body that was very unusual for people to have at the time. So obviously that's why he was chosen to be the model for the Oscar. It's kind of funny how it all happens. So here's the story. Fernandez grew up in Mexico. And in 1923, when Pancho Villa was killed, Fernandez dropped out of military college to join the Huertista rebels. When they lost... He got 20 years in prison. He only escaped because he jumped the border, and he landed in Hollywood. At that time, in the mid-20s, it was just a little movie town. But lucky for Fernandez, there were lots of roles for Mexican extras. And like Hollywood itself, Fernandez had some big ambitions. He kind of realized that he wanted to be a filmmaker, so he said he was learning his trade, and he would pay other extras for their call. So if they got a call to be on a movie for... I don't know, a dollar a day. He'd say, I'll pay you two bucks. I want your call. And then, in 1928, when he was working on the movie Ramona, he laid eyes on Dolores Del Rio. Dolores Del Rio was also from Mexico, but she was way out of his league. She came from old money in Mexico City, and she was already a star. In fact, that's her voice you hear, right there. And then one day, on the set of Ramona, she noticed him. El Indio was sitting with the extras at the dancer's bench, and Dolores del Rio gets up, points to him, and says to her assistant, I forgot my coat at the other end of the studio. Tell that Indian to get my coat. That was the moment he took his nickname, El Indio. It was technically true. Fernandez was half Kickapoo on his mother's side, but it wasn't exactly a compliment. Now, here comes the funny coincidence. At the same time that Emilio Fernandez was mooning over Dolores Del Rio, Dolores Del Rio was about to become engaged to MGM art director Cedric Gibbons. Cedric Gibbons was one of the three dozen founding members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and it was his job to design an award that they could hand out. He'd already sketched an idea, but he needed a statue, not a drawing. So he asked the sculptor George Stanley to make it in three dimensions. And this is where Fernandez enters the picture. Some stories say Gibbons happened to have Fernandez's casting photo on his desk. Other stories say Dolores Del Rio tipped him off. But in all the stories, when Gibbons approaches Fernandez to ask if he'll pose, El, se niega a El Indio para, refused. Para he refused to pose for the sculptor because he had to do it in the nude. He was a little bit of um, a bit of a prude. A prude with a huge crush. Everybody knew that El Indio Fernández was fond of Dolores del Rio, that he kind of had a thing for her. So everything comes into place, and it's Dolores del Rio who goes to Emilio Fernández and asks, will you please pose for the sculpture so he can finish the trophy? That did the trick. Fernandez posed, Stanley sculpted, and they made a mold. They sent that mold to the California Brass Foundry. In the time since then, more than 3,000 Fernandezes have been cast, buffed, and dipped in gold. Eventually, both Fernandez and Del Rio went back to Mexico. 
Fernandez started working as a director, and when Del Rio's life in Hollywood fell apart, Fernandez offered her a role. They made many movies together, but the greatest of them all was Maria Candelaria. Fernandez wrote it for Del Rio as a birthday gift, and in the role he wrote for her, she's an indigenous woman, Ese Indio. In some ways, it's a lot like the Oscar story. In the movie, Maria Candelaria poses for an artist, except this time, when the artist asks Maria Candelaria to pose nude, she refuses, and she doesn't budge. The movie won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1946. As for the Oscar, El Indio Fernandez never did get to take one home. Posey Gruner is a producer at KNKX in Seattle. She produced that piece for us in 2014. And you can see what Emilio Fernandez looked like at Studio360.org. As for how the statue got to be called Oscar, nobody really knows. This year, the Academy nominated Quentin Tarantino for three Emilios. I mean, Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, and Original Screenplay, all for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All of Tarantino's films are about other movies, and this one especially so, right down to the title. It is an homage to the Italian director Sergio Leone and his films Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America. And in Tarantino's movie, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a Hollywood actor on a downhill career slide who stars in some very Leone-esque Italian westerns. Sergio who? Sergio Cabucci. Hey, who, and who's that? The second best director of spaghetti westerns in the whole wide world. He's doing a new western. It's called Nebraska Jim. And because of me, he's considering you. Back in 2010, I asked Quentin Tarantino about how seeing Sergio Leone's movies as a young man affected him. Oh, very profoundly. I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't think I knew Sergio Leone by name at that time, but they would say... like Spaghetti when, Western. Oh, well, like yeah. when they would say, Duck, you sucker, it came out from the man that brought you good and the bad and the ugly and for a few dollars more. Like, oh, I want to see that. Yeah. Because uh, my mom actually had a huge crush on, on uh, Clint Eastwood at that time. So we went and saw all of his films, I mean, where Eagles Dare and, and the Dollars movies. Um, you know, they became touchstones for me. And it was only years later that I realized how much I respond to the actual the style of them but actually they're some of the first movies I actually remember seeing in the theaters and as far as I'm concerned they really created modern filmmaking they took filmmaking out of the 50s and out of the early 60s and really introduced and then followed by Sam Peckinpah and the Wild Bunch they they introduced us to modern filmmaking they are the first you know, the, the way we use music now the way we cut to music movies were never cut to music before right. if they were they were cut, they were not cut rhythmically yeah you the know, way we do violence music. yeah and the way we do violence. I mean, I've I've suffered for a long time. I might have gotten over it finally, but I've suffered forever for Sergio Leone itis, where you know I, I can't introduce a character unless I spend 15 minutes doing it and making it a huge operatic aria as, as they're introduced or there's some set piece. Right. In Pulp Fiction, the one thing about it that absolutely thrilled me at the time, and I never saw talked about much, and I still think about sometimes, is the moment when Uma Thurman does the don't be a square, yeah. and she, with her fingers, makes a little square in midair, and you, you animate that, yeah. uh, which was just this sort of 
thrilling, wait a minute, this is a more or less realistic movie, and he's suddenly done this bizarre cartoon mm-hmm. hallucinatory thing, and then doesn't return to it. Come on, man, let's go get a steak. You can get a steak here, Daddy-o. Don't be a... Oh, after you, kitty cat. Are you tempted to do things like that and kind of color outside the lines all the time when you make movies? Yeah, well, you know, the thing, you know, to me, the thing that made that cool was I didn't do anything like it again. Yes. And when you see something like that, and it works, when you pull it off, when you pull out a... It's a a, wink. Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly, I actually, you know, a wink is a good way to, I also described it like a kiss. Yeah. I just gave the audience a little smooch. Yeah. You know, the animated section in Kill Bill. You know, serves a similar serves a similar function. I had to like fight and not put that in the trailer. And I'm like, no, no. If you know it's coming, then it, it has no function at all. Pulp Fiction famously resurrected John Travolta's career, and you kind of did the same for Pam Grier and Jackie Brown, and and in Kill Bill, which you just talked mm-hmm. about, the late David Carradine. Let's listen to a scene uh, from that film, one of those films rather, when he's confronted by Uma Thurman. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. Um, you said that's your your most personal movie, or did at the time? Really? I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> I said I like to hide in plain sight um, because of an ex girlfriend you tried to kill at once. No, no. Again, no. It's 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 you know it's it's. A, a personal story brought to crazy, yeah, yeah. mythological uh, comic book uh, Amazonian yeah, uh, yeah. rites of passage. All of your films, to lesser or greater degrees, are about movies. Yeah, no, no. Well, well, I am a genre filmmaker. I like working inside of a genre. I like working personally from my heart inside of a genre because that way I can reveal myself but I can reveal myself without revealing myself. I can hide in plain sight. I do a genre story. I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to tell what's ever important going on with me at the time. But now, it's I don't want you to know what's going on with me at the time. But if I put it inside of a genre, my, my close friends might know. But then I get to actually relate personally but I'm still telling an exciting tale one way or the other. Well, painting got to a point a hundred years ago, a little more than a hundred years ago, where good, serious, ambitious paintings were all about art mm-hmm. suddenly, instead of just being about making pictures. And maybe that's where you are in the history of yeah. cinema. Well, yeah, but at the same time, though, I mean, on one hand, Jackie Brown isn't about cinema. It's about these characters. But yet, I'm not afraid of genre. And so I make it this almost love letter right. to black exploitation movies. Right. But it's not a black exploitation movie. There's nothing exploitive about Jackie Brown at all. No, it's a black exploitation movie in quotes. It, it very yeah. much so. But I think, you know, I, I think there's gonna be a part of I think there's gonna be a part of of my cinema that will always have that quotes around it. Yeah. But because I'm not afraid of cinema. Right. I love Cinema, I'm not trying to make cinema disappear. You know, could you imagine an author having read too many books? No, or or, or alluding to Shakespeare or no. to Dickens or whatever. Yeah, no, I love cinema. I have no problem basking in cinema and its history with, yeah. with my stories. Quentin Tarantino's latest movie about movies, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was nominated for 10 Oscars, including acting awards for the two main stars, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. But if you happen to watch the movie on TV, you may not be hearing Brad Pitt's actual voice the whole time because Tarantino's scripts are famously foul-mouthed and broadcast unacceptable as is. 
All the streets are silent. Except when Rick Dalton's got a fucking shotgun, I'll tell you that. You're goddamn right. Back in the 2000s, we talked with a voiceover actor who has a specialty, dubbing over the smutty lines of Brad Pitt. Basically, this scene, he's in hot water. He's trying to explain himself. He's lying. So you got to take all those emotions, all what's going on, and put it into just one frickin' scene. Uh, my name's Mark Sussman. I'm from Studio City. I'm a comic actor. The studios call me in to take out the bad language for TV and airplanes. I don't understand. What's it going to take, Jerry? For the gun, Jerry. What's it going to take for you to give it to me and not to another? Who the f*** are these guys? Who the frick are these you know guys? What? Not even important. Who the frick are you these guys? one good reason why I shouldn't fight to my death to not give you the gun. I used to do a lot of acting when I was younger, like 21 Jump Street, and I could go way back. Like, the first thing I did was, like, Highway to Heaven. I used to think it was like, oh, they just kind of like, what the frick? You know, and then they just superimpose that one word. But actually, if you see it, you know, on TV or something, it's that whole sentence that I'm doing. So that's why I like... Uh, the challenge of doing like the entire paragraph or like oh great I get to do all these lines oh, such an ass. I'm such a jerk I'm such, an ass I'm such a jerk give the gun to Leroy he'll get it down to Margulies ha 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 freaking ha you see do you see you see I'm being set up and even that what you know what I mean and I have to go what what frick frick you know <laughs> isn't that crazy Frick! I wish I talked like that in real life. My mom would be very proud of me. Actually, I caught myself one time like, oh, frick! And they're like, you know, what am I, like Little House on the Prairie or something? What's going on? <laughs> if, if I have to go in and I have to take out the bad language at a specific movie, I'll just watch that movie over and over again. And I'll watch the scenes where they cuss in it over and over again. And then I'll tape it. And then when I'm driving to the studio, I'll listen to it in headphones over and over again. Also, I always look for a specific physicality, you know, that's really important to me because in order to embody a character, in order to give a voice to a character, you have to physically embody the character. It's not from the neck up. It's the whole thing, even if people don't see it. So, like with Brad Pitt, the way I got him down for Fight Club and stuff, I noticed that he licks his lips a lot, and that gives his, like, I don't know, that's how he is, you know? Jewish Brad Pitt, you know what I mean? I can't pay you. We need the ride. See, his voice is kind of deep, so I just go down here like this. We need a ride. We need a frickin' ride. You know? And he's kind of surfer, kind of like that kind of guy. And he also has a raspy voice. He's very into his lips. I, I, I feel that. Yeah, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's a, a lesser art form. I think it's a different art form. Just like acting or painting or voiceover work, if you have an ability and you can do it, and you're good at it, it's just like painting. It's just like being in front of the camera. Ben Adair and Ayala Ben Yehuda produced our story at KPCC in Pasadena. The real Brad Pitt was nominated for an Oscar this year for his role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. By the way, at a party during a Hollywood Awards weekend years ago, I stepped on Brad Pitt's foot, accidentally, but hard. His bodyguard was pretty unhappy. Coming up... Pedro Almodovar is a very tough director. It's not easy working with him. Why Antonio Banderas keeps returning to the longtime collaborator who discovered it. 
he managed to bring out of me a character that I didn't even know I had inside. The Oscar-nominated actor on his complicated relationship with Pedro Almodovar. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. There was in 1980. I was 90. I was working at that time at the National Theater in Spain. I got long hair, a little mustache, and a fly beard. <laughs> That's the actor Antonio Banderas talking about meeting this guy in Madrid, a young film director named Pedro Amadova. And uh, I was outside of the theater in a coffee shop with some of the other actors of the play. And this man with a red briefcase appeared over there, sit with us without even introducing himself. He knew some of the members of the company. And so he started throwing this monologue that was very funny. I don't remember what he talked about, but I remember that I laughed. He was ingenious, fast. He used a lot of irony and certain cynicism, too. And suddenly, well, after 20 minutes of giving us this uh, homily, <laughs> he stood up to leave. He looked at me and says, you should do movies. you got a very romantic face. You should be in movies. Goodbye. Boom. And he left. And I asked somebody, who is this guy? And they said to me, his name is Pedro Almodovar. He made one movie, and he will never make another one. <laughs> I saw him again like three or four weeks after that, and he came to see the play, and at the end, they came to my dressing room and he offered me a movie called Labyrinth of Passion. And I, at that time, I, I never did a movie before, so I said to him, basically, I am a theater actor. I have never done a movie. I don't know if I can answer to expectations. And he said, oh, if you do theater, you'll be fine in movies. I will direct you, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine. I said, okay, sure. Since then, Antonio Banderas and Pedro Almodovar have made a bunch of movies together. Five, pretty much back-to-back in the 1980s in Spain. But then, a two-decade hiatus while Banderas was pursuing his Hollywood career. Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, Evita, The Mask of Zorro, the Spy Kids movies, Puss in Boots, and on and on. But once again, he has reunited with the director who discovered him for last year's terrific film, Pain and Glory, which is their eighth together. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best International Film and Banderas for Best Actor. He plays this older, complicated film director, a character closely based on Amadovar. The Amadovar-esque character in Pain and Glory has medical problems, a heroin habit, flashes back a lot to his childhood, and reunites with long-lost friends and lovers and collaborators over the course of the film? I, I would describe the film as uh, the story of a man uh, who is an artist, who is a movie director, who actually is going back in time in order to uh, close certain wounds that were left open to reconciliate with himself, to come to terms with certain people. And, um, and basically, the movie is that. In the middle of that, there is a reflection about art, about movies in particular, and about life itself. Right. You, too, have known each other for almost 40 years. So was playing this character inspired by him, this version of him, when he came to you and said, hey, you want to do this? Was that enticing, scary, awkward? <laughs> what? All of, all of it. <laughs> well, uh, 
it, it was um, relieving to me. Because I, the, the last movie I did with him was nine years ago. It was The Skin I Live In. This ghastly, weird vengeance movie about a plastic surgeon. Yeah. The only Almodovar. <laughs> only, only Almodovar. And before than that, for 22 years, we didn't work together. Yes. So I arrived to The Skin I Live In, and I'm going to just go back to nine years because the creation of this character started there without even me knowing. You know, when I got there at the rehearsal, because Pedro Almodovar is one of those movie directors who rehearsed, and rehearsed for a long period of time. Weeks? Just, weeks, yeah, a month, approximately, you know, prior to principal photography. But I arrived there after two, tw- 22 years in America. You know, I have learned a, a bunch of things, Pedro. You know, I just uh, behave in front of the camera in a different way. I'm more secure. I can use my voice in this way. And, and after a I'm week... I'm a grown-up. You know, Exactly. And so after a week of rehearsal, I said to me, you know, all of those things that you have learned there, I cannot use. <laughs> those are things that are not really for me. So where are you? He asked me. <laughs> and at that time, instead of actually answering that question or try to answer that question, I thought, oh, my God, why is he so harsh on me? You know, I'm, I'm going to go on my path. I'm just going to use, you know, all the things that I have learned just to find my character. And, you know, but, you know, it creates certain tension on the set. Anyway, we finished that shooting, and then I saw the movie in the Toronto Film Festival, and I saw it, and I couldn't believe that he managed to bring out of me a character that I didn't even know I had inside. So at that point, I said, oh, I think I should be a little bit more humble than that. Yeah. I should open my ears and my eyes and listen to people that I... Especially people that I trust. And I trust Pedro Almodovar. I started doing movies with him almost 40 years ago. Am I going to have an opportunity again just to work with him? And a decade later, you did. Yeah. And the opportunity came one day that he called me on the phone. He said, I'm going to send you this script called Pain and Glory. And you are going to find a bunch of references that have to do with our life, you know, in the 80s and the movies that we did at that time. And you're going to find very familiar characters in there. And so I called him after I read the script and I loved it. And I said, listen, I am going, you know, clean. I am not going to use all the tools that I've been using this year. I want to just start something absolutely new. I want to start from the scratch with you. Uh And I'm going to listen to you. And I want to know... Basically, why do you want to do this movie and why did you call me to play you? <laughs> so in terms of the character, the Amadovar character you play, it doesn't particularly resemble him in the way he moves or talks? No. No, I, you know, he surrounded characters in the physicality of it, you know. The hair is very similar to the hair that he uses, you know, the, the, all the costumes, the colors. He got an exact replica of his apartment in Madrid. Right. But then he came to the point in which he said to me one day on rehearsal, if you want to use some of my mannerism for the character, you can do it. And I said, no, there, I, we are going to stop in there. I don't think I should do that. I think I should create a character from the inside out. If I just try to imitate you, it's not going to be a performance. It's going to be an imitation. I don't think it's the right way to attack this. We are going to lose points there. Right. We should just do another type of creation there. And he says, okay. So we started just working in that uh, aspect in a completely different way. How is working with him, the actual work on the set, making the movie, how is that different with him than all the dozens of other directors you've worked with? Pedro Almodovar is a very tough director. It's not easy. Working with him, he's very demanding, very meticulous. He knows exactly what he wants, and he's not going to let you go 
in different directions. You can bring things, but uh, at the end, you know, you have to go and understand what he's trying to do and get in a parallel line with him. If you don't do that, you're going to have a hard time. Does he get better performances out of you than other directors? I think so. I think so. But because he he doesn't allow you to go off the truth. I mean, and, and, and especially now, I think I suppose there is age too. You know, there is a moment in when you get to a certain age, and I am in that place too, already in which there is only space for the truth, only space for the truth. You know, it, <laughs> everything else is, starts uh, looking stupid and ridiculous. So you're just searching for that because time is short. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another thing that struck, strikes me as interesting is this character that you play uh, is gay. You are not. Right. Uh, but many of the characters you've played for Pedro, who is gay, are gay. Yeah. Because why? I don't know, but I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. I, never, I never did have a problem. Do gay people now because have a problem with that because straight people aren't supposed to play gay people these days? I don't know. I received an award in 2006 by the, uh, it was called the GLAAD Award, by the gay community yeah. in yeah. Los Angeles because of the way that I represented them. Right. And I am very proud of that yeah. award. And so I tried to do it with, uh, you know, flair and, you know, and try to just give my soul and my heart right. to them. In Hollywood, you have been cast, you are cast as variously this mysterious romantic leading man a lot and an action hero, Zorro, uh, The Expendables, or spoofs of those, like one of my favorite films of yours, Puss in Boots, mm -hmm. uh, Spy Kids. Um, but then, and so not to say you're typecast, but you know, a lot of your films are those two kinds of characters. Whereas yeah. with Amadovar, there's this incredible range of characters you've played over these, you yeah. know, 35, 40 years. Uh, ailing filmmaker, g kicking heroin, mad scientist, uh, gay terrorist. Is part of the attraction that you're going to get to do all kinds of things that you don't know if you can do with him? Is it, I mean, it, it's almost as if you have two different careers. You have the Amadovar career and the other career. Yeah, it's true. No, I, I don't know if that's the attraction is for the character. I I recognize in Pedro Almodovar a real artist, as somebody. I mean, his movies and they are very radical, and the people actually also re react in a radical way. You have people who love Pedro Almodovar, and people don't like the Pedro Almodovar movies. But there is something that anybody can actually they have to recognize. This is a guy with a tremendous strong personality, and very unique that never betrayed himself. He's absolutely loyal to his style. He never went and said, oh, I'm going to just change my cinematography. I'm going to be a hack. Yeah, oh, no, because yeah. of money. You yeah, know, yeah, and yeah, he received yeah. offers from Hollywood. He received offers from anybody. Never accepted that. He has been there persistently for 21 movies nonstop. And that is, in our days especially, is a virtue. So I love to be there in that space, that smell and if taste like truth truth artist, you know. And then I, I understand that, you know, art in general and movies in particular, they just serve many different purposes in life. And, and, and I don't have anything to, you know, against a movie that just pretend just to entertain right. people, which is... You've made some of those. I, I made some of those, yeah. of course, because I, there are people that they love to go to the movie theaters after they've been working the whole entire week with their girlfriends or the boyfriends and have a big 
part of uh, popcorn and enjoy two hours of a good entertainment. And there are other people who love to go to movies just to explore about the human spirit right. and the complications of the soul and the depth of the soul of the mankind. You know, there are all of those spaces. If you don't try to just lie to the audience, uh, you're fine. Right. You know, so I have done all of those because I am an actor. And that's what I am. And I love those actors that in the old, old days in Spain, they used to go like the circus people. And in the morning, they do a comedy and at night, they do Shakespeare. And that's what they are. <laughs> and so I tried just to keep that in my mind. I don't want to become crazy when I talk about the creation of a career. And sometimes the creation of a career is you have to renounce an incredible amount of things that you would love to do, but your agent says, no, you have to be coherent. Really? This is what the audience is responding to beautifully. So you should go in that path. Don't leave that path. You are going to just make one break after the other. You're going to be a very beautiful career. And I don't like that. <laughs> That's their creation, your career. That's yeah. right. And I don't like that. I like to be, as yeah, I said yeah. to you, an actor. Right. And I like to play a comedy <laughs> sometimes. I like to play to play a, a movie for kids. Sure, sure. And at the same time, I have to recognize that in Hollywood, I have a certain... I was limited in my possibilities because of my accent. And you spoke no English whatsoever when you got to Hollywood. Um, because I arrived there with 30 years old, you know... And so these are the range of possibilities that I have. I have to play with those cards. I didn't have all the range of cards in my right, hands. Right. I only can receive these 10 cards gotcha. out of the maze. So how you play with that yeah, yeah. is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and life is changing to, at the same time. And I now my body is asking me and my mind, you know, that I would like to do movies that are more, I mean, a little bit deeper, uh -huh. that I would like to just reflect about life you know, about relationships, about certain events, and probably Hollywood is not providing me with that, so where can I find that? I'm going to find that in England, I'm going to find that in Spain, in Europe, you know, so I am searching. I am not in a hurry for anything. Uh -huh. I've done 112 movies, I'm going to be 60 next year, um, I'm fine. And you moved to London four years ago, right? Um, yeah, I'm living in London, and I'm content, I'm satisfied. Antonio Banderas, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, really. Antonio Banderas was nominated for Best Actor for his role in Pain and Glory, which was also up for Best International Feature Film at the Academy Awards. And that's it for this week's program. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team consists of Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery, and I'm Kurt Anderson. He's very into his lips. I, I, I feel that. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, the magic that brought us Yanni and John Tesh. I realized that if I was going to have a real full-time music career, that it was going to have to be some big event. The unlikely vehicle to start him in the 1990s, PBS Pledge Drives. What I needed was something like a PBS special to make a whole bunch of loud noise. That's next time on Studio 360.